0: Welcome to Data Dialogues. Each data dialogue is a three-part conversation. The first two segments individually highlight a person working with environmental data that acts as a starting place for our group conversation with both guests. By talking through who's using what kinds of data and how, we're working to personalize the landscape that environmental data is sitting in so that it can be more accessible and useful to everyone. I'm your host, Angela Eaton. Our guest today is Dr. Jarrah Mesh. Jarrah is an artist-scholar whose work explores issues of justice through the design, production, and acquisition of embodied knowledges. Jarrah's research incorporates queer crypt theory, cultural studies, art, and design practices to develop new models for justice and to imagine new worlds. Hi, Jarrah. Hello. So I'm really excited to have you today. One of the things that I've been really thinking about with a lot of my guests is about a favorite space and place of theirs outdoors. So I'm wondering if you could relate um, to me a space of yours that you like to go to outdoors.
1: So this is a really tough question. Um, I've, I've spent a significant time out outdoors and I, um, I would say maybe it's more a time than a place um, being outdoors um, at sunrise. I'm not a morning person at all, but being awake just before the sun comes up, whether I'm in a city and getting up and going for a walk or getting a cup of coffee or taking a walk or going to work, um, or, you know, being out in the, you know, in the woods or camping somewhere and just the sun's coming up over the trees you're sitting there and there's this moment of peacefulness right before the start of the day so I can be anywhere in the world and have that and I think that that's um, that's my favorite place outdoors is really that time
0: I love that you can always take that with you how then can you take that with you as you do your work like how can you relate that space outdoors to anything that you're thinking about day to day
1: um, I think that if I could, um, using that to center myself, that moment of peacefulness, that moment of like calm, um, I think, you know, if you meditate at all, there's a feeling there that would be really great to be able to take with me. Um, So if I'm, you know, in the middle of chaos or if I'm in the middle of, you know, um, doing something or things aren't going smoothly in whatever it is that I'm doing, to be able to just stop and close my eyes and feel that for a moment, I think is a a great way to center and to sort of bring a moment of calm, which then perhaps can lead to um, better conversations, better thinking, maybe more clarity, maybe knowing when to step back, um, maybe knowing when to move forward, you know, and sort of... um, yeah. I mean, that's that's the hope. Right?
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Especially because you have a lot of lenses. You're an artist. You're a scholar. You explore a lot of theory spaces and physical spaces in your work. That's all me just trying to grasp at it. Could you just tell me, you know, give me a little bit about your work and your path to your work?
1: Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of a long winding road. <laughs> um, (laughs) So never besides like my junior high classes where we had to take art. I never actually took art classes until my MFA. Um, So everything was uh, self-taught. If you look at my like notebooks from it, as when I was a kid, I started journaling when I was about eight and it's images, sketches snippets of conversation that I heard that I would, or whatever, that I would literally write out with quotes. I mean, things that I found years later, right? And um, and so it, this has always been a process for me. And that developed into my art to a certain extent um, through painting, but also through some installation work that I was doing. And I finally went for my MFA and started to explore what the program called like a social justice lens, what I would call just um, straight up, you know, thinking through and <laughs> thinking about life, right? Like and understanding it and recognizing that, you know, we're all embodied in these these very particular ways and that these embodied knowledges actually count, right? And in academia where, you know, I'm doing an MFA, so it's still academic, right? And in those spaces those things didn't matter as much. I had to write a thesis that had to have particular kinds of citations um, for, over others, and you know. And then when I went on to do my PhD, the same thing was happening. You know, and I just it didn't make sense to me because embodied knowledges are important. And then once you start to look at critical race theory, or if you look at queer theory, if you look at you know um, disability um, or crip theories, what you start to understand is that people people's embodied experiences actually really do matter, and they always have mattered. I'm also really. I'm just curious. Um, I'll give anything a shot. I'll, you know, something I want to learn about something. Fine, I'll learn it. So, you know, this. I think about the, what I'm trying to do, and I think about what it is, how I might get there, and then I, if it's tech, if it's a particular thing, then I'm like, well, you know, I really need to build a website for this. Oh crap! I now got to learn how to, you know, build a website. Um, so then I would go and I learn, you know, whatever it was that I needed to learn. So, um, so I have. I I just try it. And if it's terrible, it doesn't matter. You know, what do I have to lose by trying? And so I think that that's part of it, too, is like that kind of embodied knowing. And that that practice itself is actually the knowledge. You're building your own knowledge. That's the embodied knowledge. And so it all sort of just comes together.
0: I I feel a lot of resonance with that. (laughs) Um, so when you're talking about all these different embodied identities that you're bringing to your work especially you touched on environmental work or environmental ideas that you bring to your work I'm I'm curious about how you use and find the information that you want to to inform you or to help do the work that you're doing uh the art the artistic work or the justice work that you're doing?
1: Yeah, so um, I said before, I think um, I have a number of interests, right? And So um, climate justice is something that I came to because I recognized that sort of the mainstream environmental movements didn't make sense to me. And so I tried to understand what the other possibilities were. And then I found this whole world that already existed of people of activists doing this incredible work. And so, um, trying to just understand, you know, how people brought things to them, you know, brought things to their own work and what they were doing and trying to understand how they were making connections across things. And so one project I did a number of years ago that, um, I think really sort of explains everything, um. I worked with a number of undergraduate students at the university I was at at the time. What we ended up doing was looking at air pollution and and what we came to find out was that um, the ways the data are being collected for air pollution measurements specifically leave out very polluted areas, because it changes the information for the city level, what's being collected city by city, and then the cities themselves are putting that information in. And then that becomes sort of this, you know, data for the city. So you might have information citywide, or even maybe even, you know, across a city, you might have a couple different locations that are collecting data. But if it's a known polluted area, then they weren't collecting that information because it didn't make sense. So that means if you live or work in those areas, the, the, air, the air pollution readings weren't for you. So we started thinking about that. And of course, most of these communities that are not being included in the data collection are fence line, you know, fence line communities or, you know, communities that have been underserved. And and so we ended up um, designing, um, these little pollution sensors—they were about ninety bucks. We were able to deploy them remotely using SMS. We were asking people to put them in their backyards. Um, we ended up only getting through prototype. We didn't get funding for the second half, but we got through the prototype. But the idea was they would end up in people's backyards or in their city parks, and then the it would collect five different kinds of pollution levels, and it would send to a central database. And that central database would be um de-identified um in terms of like where like if it was in your backyard nobody would know it was in your backyard they would know generally the neighborhood right or the street but that was it so what would end up happening with that information would then be able to be able to track over time in multiple ways one would be you know you can have months-long data collection so you can see levels over time could also which then you could take to like you know you could use civically like with your local government to argue for things another thing might be um that, you know, like the bus, uh, bus, you know, if you're waiting for the like next bus, I think it's called or whatever, like you're waiting for the bus, you type in where you are and it tells you when the next bus is coming. So we were aiming to, we had sort of a prototype that it would tell you you know, what the pollution level was typically during that, you know, during the time, you know, um, sort of like a forecast, a pollution forecast for, let's say, your local park, you want to go to the park with your kid, and you're like, oh, well, um," where you are a kid, you want to go to the park, and you're like, I want to know what the air pollution looks like there, not for the city, because the air pollution levels for the city are very specific, but they're citywide, they're not necessarily for your park down the street. And if you live near a polluting factory, you might want to know a little bit more on your own personal level. It wasn't only about personal though, it was also about like this idea that everything was, um, that it's actually a systemic problem because you can't get the information because they're not collecting it because they're purposely excluding it. So it was trying to take like the very, you know take this sort of big systemic thing, take it to a very personal level and then enable it to go back up again.
0: You're definitely thinking about things in ways that, um, you know, i, I have such I have such an angle on it from looking at environmental data And how voices can be elevated by looking at the data that we collect about ourselves as being a voice and a way for us to uh, speak about ourselves. When there's a lot of times so much data collected about us and that like a, a lot of times that feels like a disenfranchisement that we're under observation and so I'm really curious how communities can be more involved in the interpretation of data and how people can really participate in decisions, their own decisions, their community's decisions through expressing themselves in as you were calling it, embodied knowledge, whether it takes the form as, you know, strict data or, you know, conversation or any of the many different ways that we learn and understand this very complex. Thing that's happening around climate
1: so participatory participatory action research is like a really interesting you know um, it's a really interesting thing um, and there's all kinds of ways that it works really well and there are all kinds of issues with it but um, one of the things that I've come to find is that sometimes you have to bring something to somebody and ask them what's wrong and they say scrap that whole thing this is actually what we're thinking and so while it was a really cool idea it really like It couldn't go anywhere unless you could say, so the two ways, right, is you're taking it, like, here's this thing, you were talking about it, this is the idea I had, and I can throw the whole thing away, but here's a place to start. You can talk with people all you want about ideas, but until you show them something and they say they hate it, you really can't move forward because you don't actually understand each other until you have something down. This is something I also do with my students. I make them put things down on paper as soon as possible, because what I want you to do is get the ideas down on paper so you can talk about them. You can't talk about them until you can see them. You can share them with somebody. Once you share them with somebody, they can say, well, I don't like this. I love this. Oh, I was actually, I thought when you said this, this is what you meant. And then you start to have the conversation. And so to a certain extent, bringing something to somebody is good, but they should also be bringing something to you. And so that's a that's an interesting th- question. Like, I should not just be sitting here talking with you. You should be talking with me, um, right? We can't design something together unless we are, having a conversation. And so the start of that conversation may be this, right? This may be what we're doing, right? We start out with this and then we say, wow, like your work is fascinating. Like I love what you were just saying about like the ways you're putting pieces together. I would love to talk with you more about that. Then let's say you and I continue talking about it. And we're like, okay, so what is this sort of design space that we're in? What is this data space that we're in? How do we think about this? And we start there. And that's the other thing, right? Is like, where are you starting? How do you do this work, right? In a way that is thoughtful, that is, you know, where you're not walking into a community and saying, this is what you should be doing, because of course, that's not our place, right? So what does it mean to do design work then? So I focus on this idea of like sort of, and it's not new, but like design is facilitator, right? I am a facilitator. I am not the person, if I'm going, if I want to work with a community, I don't get to just walk in and extract knowledge. And, um, and tell them what they need. And then at the end of the semester, walk away, right? My students don't get to do that. I don't, my students don't, in my classes, if they're not already working with a community, I, I ask them not to go work with a community that they don't know and not to try to get involved with somebody and make promises they can't keep because that's, that's not fair right? Um, Because the the embodied knowledges within those communities are their embodied knowledges and they get to choose how they want to do things and they get to choose who they want to be with. If I have funding to do something, then the, the funding has to be loose enough that I can um, that a community can actually help develop it with me. What do they want, right? And what is it that their needs are? Um, how can I help them? Who do they need to talk to? Oh, maybe I can facilitate conversation. And so thinking about what my role as designer is, it's not necessarily a designer as I design objects for people um, or with people, but I'm thinking about what does it mean to be interdependent, right? And um, that we nobody does anything alone. So what can I do um, from the, my, my positionality that can enable people to do the things they need to do. And if I'm a facilitator, rather than the person who's telling you what to do, what does that look like, right? And so those are some of the bigger questions.
0: You as a designer are trying to hold that space and create something new or create something better in a space that works for a lot of different possibilities. And I'm wondering how with crypt design or disability design and centering that, how environmental justice or how work on environmental information design can be improved or be related more broadly as better accessibility overall or better incorporation and inclusion overall?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because this is um, there's a there's a tension between sort of larger environmental justice movements and disability communities. Um, and so I'm not super involved in this in this part of things, so I can give you a very general overview. Fair enough. But um, but thinking about things like one of the things um, is bring your body to the, you know to the space. Show up and be there and this goes for most movements right Um, get into the street be in the street and do the work because the work happens in the street and there's nothing wrong with being in the street like I believe that people should be in the street if they can but not everybody can be there but it doesn't mean that they're not actually doing work right and so um, you may not see my face on the street but what you don't know is that I'm sitting at home on the computer like key and and on my phone and I'm making connections with people and making sure people stay safe Um, if something's happening in one place I can direct them somewhere else and tell them oh you need to go to this other space because there are people there that can help you. And lots of people do this, not only disabled people, but disabled people do some of that work. But there's also all these other ways that they do it. But other things too are just thinking about what counts as caring for the environment, what actually counts as, you know, environmental work or saving the planet or doing climate justice work, right? What are those things that count and whose knowledge is count and how they interact with you with, with these, with these things count. And so if I say to you, I can't peel an orange because of my mobility uh, or my, you know, my Like my, I just can't do it. That's not something I can do. So I don't eat oranges very often, but because Whole Foods has done this for me, I can. And yes, there's plastic packaging, but let's focus on the packaging. Don't make fun of the fact that some people can't peel oranges. So like, but there's, the conversation became, well, you just, you know, that's, you should just not eat oranges then rather than being like, oh, maybe you should think about the packaging that they're using because the packaging is the problem, not the fact that the orange has been pre-peeled. I mean, we have, if you go to the grocery store, there's pre-washed lettuce. There are plastic containers filled with shredded carrots and cabbage. And you can buy all kinds of pre-cut vegetables in bags and plastic containers. And nobody says that those are bad for the environment. It's only because somebody pre-peels an orange and put it in a plastic container that it became that. And their purpose was not to actually help people with disabilities, but they did. And so it was an interesting tension, right? Same thing with plastic straws. Um, If there's nothing else somebody can use, what should they do? The questions really aren't on that individual level though. And that gets back to what I was saying at the beginning. You can take things down to the individual level and individuals can and should do things, but they're also really important in relationship to the larger systemic knowledges. And in reality, my using a plastic straw is not going to be the same as an oil company, you know, putting a pipeline through um, indigenous land and destroying land and those kinds of questions. Like, where are we on talking about climate justice, right? Like talking about what's actually important for, um, for the world and for us. And so the conversations are happening on such different levels. And I think, you know, if you start to think about interdependence, you know, if you're thinking that way and we're all, we're all, you know not dependent on each other, but we're interdependent. We have to do work together. We have to make change together. And we can't incorporate everybody and start to think about the ways that there are going to be tensions and conflicts. And, you know, even with access, you can have conflicting access needs, right? Um, you might have one need and I might have another and they conflict with each other. And it means that it makes it really difficult to do things. So we have to figure out other ways to do it, right? So thinking about that.
0: I hope we can talk about that more. And um, that leads me to your dialogue partner, Mm -hmm. Daphne Freyus. Daphne is a 23-year-old disabled youth organizer working on the intersections of gun violence prevention, the climate crisis, and disability justice. In 2019, Daphne was the official spokesperson for the youth climate strikes, and she's passionate about uplifting the voice of Gen Z in all areas of justice work. So. I'm really excited to continue this conversation with you and with Daphne. And I'm wondering if you have a sparking thought for Daphne. Uh,
1: 23 years old, doing incredible, incredible work. Um, I, I don't necessarily have a sparking th- thought more than I'm just so excited for the work. And I would love to know more about, you know, that, the same thing you asked me, really, like, what is the, what, what's the path? How, how do you, how do you, at 23 years old, become this person? And how do you have such vision? Right? Um, I mean, though, I, those are my, those are my thoughts, really. And they're not, they're, they're probably what everybody asks. So they may not be anything like beyond, uh, you know, beyond what Daphne has already answered in lots of different ways. But um,
0: I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm excited to hear it again. Uh, however she wants to talk about it and how, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to our group conversation. So one last thing, would you let us know where we can follow you and hear about your work online? Absolutely.
1: Um, so you can find me on Twitter at the Jarrah Tree, which is the word the, T-H-E. My name Jara J-A-R-A-H, and the word tree, T-R-E-E. You can also find me at my website, which is my name, jaramesh.com, which is J-A-R-A-H, and the last name is M-O-E-S-C-H.com. And then finally, um, we just had, um, with the Critical Design Lab, we have just launched um, an exhibition of artwork um, called Crip Ritual, which is in collaboration with the Tangled Art and Disability Gallery and the Dar- Doris McCarthy Gallery in Toronto. And you can find a virtual Um, the virtual exhibit online at CripRitual.com. C-R-I-P, and then the word ritual,
0: R-I-T-U-A-L.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This segment is one of a three-part conversation series. To listen to Daphne Fries' individual conversation with me, or to hear our group dialogue with Jara and Daphne, please visit us wherever you listen to your podcasts or at OpenEnvironmentalData.org. To read a transcript of this episode and to access resources mentioned throughout the show, please take a look at our show notes, which you can find in the caption for this episode or at OpenEnvironmentalData.org. This podcast was created by Emma Grimm, Angela Eaton, Michelle Cheripka, Shannon Dosmegan, Amelia Williams. And Katie Hoberling with music by the Westerlies. Data Dialogues is supported by the Open Environmental Data Project, which is funded by the Shuttleworth Foundation.